Re is a podcast brought to you by New Heights Church, a church located in Mission, B.C., focused on being church with mission in mind. We are your hosts, Greg Elford and Jess Steffick, and this is the Re podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. We acknowledge that we gather, live, play, and worship on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Stolo First Nation. Today, the Re podcast talks with folks from New Heights who are both learning about and living into this idea of simplicity. We start with the story about the radical expression of simplicity, as in selling all your stuff and moving to East Hastings at the age of 20. Next, we hear how a simplified vision for life brought restoration to a marriage. And lastly, we close with a look inside one person's reflection on how when we make ourselves available to God and to others, we sometimes end up on the receiving end of things. Have you ever wondered if life is too comfortable or maybe you're too attached to your stuff? In this segment, Greg looks back with Ben Deo to a time 13 years ago when some dreams and a very special hash brown were part of a decision to give everything of his away and what parts of the story he wishes he could take back. Hello, my name is Ben Deo. Um, just talking about simplicity here and some of the stories in my life that lead up to that. Uh, when I was 20, I basically um, got rid of everything, sold everything and moved to East Hastings. So I felt like that's where God wanted me to be. Um, and this is a bit of that story. How in the world did you get the idea that you should get rid of everything you own and head on over to East Hastings? Um, it kind of came out of the blue. I was, I had a really good job for my age. Um, I was still living at home, so life was pretty cushy. And uh, I had my new car and everything. Uh, then it started really, really getting on my mind and pestering me about where my life was at and, and that I wasn't, I was more mostly living for myself. And I started having dreams about going to Vancouver and I wasn't sure what to do, but I knew I was supposed to go to Vancouver and it was nothing I could do could shake that thought from my mind during the day. And it was having dreams at night about it. And so there's obviously a story in scripture that is uh, one that leaps to mind for me anyway, where um, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks him, what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And he says to keep the commandments and he says, I've done all that. And he goes, Oh, just one more little thing. If you could go ahead and sell all your possessions and follow me. Do you think that that kind of um, a passage was ringing in your ears or is this something that just kind of showed up um, in your heart and in your spirit some other way? I think it's not, it wasn't initially on my mind. That was, um, the scripture that came to my mind later as far as kind of confirming that it wasn't just 
my own thoughts kind of deal. Okay, well, let's get the details straight here because I remember this story with a lot of fondness. Um, I get a call from your parents. You're, were you 19 or 20 at the time, you said? 20? Okay, so I get a call from Rob and Debbie that says, our son has this wild idea that he's supposed to sell and give away everything he has and just with a backpack and a sleeping bag, head to the most dangerous area in Vancouver to um, to just find a way to help. He has no plan. He has no landing place. Um, wh- what, do you, what do you remember as the reaction of your friends and family as you started to tell them what you were thinking of doing? Uh, most people were really concerned. My boss pulled me aside during work hours and talked to me for about two hours trying to convince me to stay. He said... He would uh, go down there and help out on the weekends. And if he, if I wanted to, if, if I was just trying to prove a point, he'd come and help me and feed homeless people and everything on the weekends because he, did, he didn't think I was being smart about it. Right. And like, I remember your parents um, s- suggesting that I meet with you and like wrestle through whether this is a good idea. And I'm, I'm pretty pretty confident your mom was not on board initially knowing Debbie. And, um, I remember after our conversation, there was such a a strong sense of that you were supposed to do this, that you had convinced me, like I was on the Ben Deo heading to Hastings train. And I was, uh, I thought, yeah, this is uh, somehow you convinced me this was a good idea. So there must've been some resolve I'm trying to think back. I guess that's 10, 13 years ago now. I'm trying to think back of how in the world you convinced me that this was a good idea. Well, my my final straw, which is kind of embarrassing, but I went to a kind of, I was sitting at McDonald's outside of my work and I had my final straw. It's been bugging me so much. I said, okay, I'm going to do that whole fleece, lay down a fleece thing. And I had something different in mind, but I couldn't, I didn't uh, name the specifics when I was talking with God about it. What do you mean by lay down a fleece? Just in case people aren't, don't know what that means. So I, I basically put up a situation that said, if this happens, I'll know that you're wanting me to do this, right? Okay. And I had in mind, okay, well, I just went to McDonald's and I was thinking, okay, if I win on this Monopoly ticket, no, you didn't. I did. <laughs> I was thinking like a thousand bucks or whatever, something like nice. If I win on this next ticket, I'm going to say, okay, that's the final whatever I'm going. I want a hash round. <laughs> <laughs> and I, then I immediately said to myself, I should have stated my terms better. But, <laughs> so I don't know if that's a... Uh, if that was legit or not, but that's what, that's what kind of pushed you over the edge. That was my last, cause I was 95% sure I was going to be doing that, but that was the kicker. And I bet you every time you have a hash brown at McDonald's since that, that memory comes back. It does. I bet. I bet. That was a fun conversation with my boss that morning. Cause he was that... moving me up pretty quick. And, and, uh, I told him why I had to quit and what I was planning on doing. And he was just, he never heard that something like that before. And he was pretty confused. Did he say, did you tell him the hash brown made you do it? Yeah, I think I left <laughs> that part out. 
hard out for years. Oh, it's good to get it all out on the table here. Okay, so you uh, you you didn't have a plan, but you had a sense you were supposed to do this, and you get down to the where the train station uh, is in Vancouver and get off the train. What did you do? What did you do next? Like, how did you start to figure out what you're supposed to do? Um, well, I before I left. Uh, a friend's mom told me that I told her about what I was planning on doing and I didn't know where I was supposed to be or going. And then she said that she got a call or had a conversation with a friend the day before I talked to her about that. And that they said they, they there was a place on East Hastings that was looking for someone to help without any job description or anything. So she gave me a phone number and a name and no, a phone number and the address. So I went walking down Hastings trying to find this address. And I didn't uh, think about using Google Maps or anything. So I ended up walking about 10 kilometers past it. <laughs> turn around and walk back. So you, you didn't have anything established with these people. You had just heard they might need some help. Yeah. So I never talked to them or anything. And then okay. I showed up there pretty late in the night because I had just walked a very long ways. <laughs> um, and um, I remember um, going into that place and kind of explaining my situation, saying that I just felt like I was supposed to show up and see if they needed help. Amazing. And uh, that I didn't have any place to stay that night. And I just had what was in my backpack and, I think I had some pretty wicked mutton chops at the time. You were a handsome looking fellow, eh? Yeah, no. Um, and, uh, and a lady named Galena, little, little Russian lady. Um, she was pretty baffled by the whole situation and just basically told me to wait there while she tries to check up on my story, make sure I wasn't a crazy person. Now, I think that's where it's maybe good for me to give a bit of detail. And I'm not sure if I've ever told you this. So Glena called me and said, yeah, um, hello. I uh, have a Mr. Ben Deo here with me who says you're connected to him in a church out in Mission. And he is saying that he uh, has come with just a backpack to and wants to help. And he has no place to stay. I'm kind of concerned for this guy. And then I'll never forget because she said, um, "Would it be? Would I be safe in having him sleep on my couch tonight?" And my answer was, "Lady, you are safer if Ben Dale is sleeping on your couch. Like you are in good hands. Don't worry." And so I remember your parents and I all breathing a sigh of relief because we're picturing like, "Where is he going to sleep tonight?" Or are you, you, you in a McDonald's somewhere. Um, maybe getting your next message on on how God wants you to live your life from the from the monopoly scratch. Okay, so briefly, can you can you tell us uh, how it felt to kind of land there? Did you feel like you were vindicated, or like, see, I knew God wanted me to do this, and this is evidence that I've found this place that really needs me? Was that the experience? Um, later that night, yes. Because after I talked to her and told her what was going on, she didn't trust me automatically, so I left. And I, I, I had my cell phone, 
So I gave her my cell phone number and I was actually in line at a shelter when she called back saying, okay, I've talked to uh, your pastor and everything seems legit. Where are you? You can come sleep on my couch. So she came and picked me up and we drove up to her place. And that's where she told me that um, it was either the other, the day before or the week before that they were praying about someone just showing up because they really needed help and they didn't have any budget really. So they needed someone to basically come and help out. And what, with what, like what were they asking for? So they had a low income housing uh, building there. Uh, I think there was a hundred rooms and they needed someone to do front desk maintenance and, uh, and, uh, basically anything <laughs> just you were kind of like just helping with all kinds of odds and sods yeah so that must have been like a moment where you get the chills a bit like wait a second a week ago they were pleading their case with god and about around the same time you're having dreams yeah yeah that's that's what i lean on for uh when i think back was it a mistake or what I, was i i didn't do everything right but that is unshiftable for me how that the circumstances that led up for me going there were god orchestrated because it doesn't make sense any other way can you tell us how you look back on that now um as a in the middle of of your 30s here your mid 30s how you look back like what would 30 something ben say to 20 year old ben if i were to talk to my 20 year old self now I would um, I would definitely encourage myself to fall through with what I did with going to East Hastings, um, but there would be a couple things I would change, just from more maturity now. Um, I believe I looked at the whole scripture part of getting rid of the possessions was what was simplifying my life to make that optional, to make that a, an option I can do. And now I would look back and say that getting rid of the selling and giving everything away wasn't the issue. It wasn't the, what was in my way. It was that I was keeping that stuff um, in higher regard in my life than it should have been. And that was making my life not simple. It wasn't the, it wasn't the actual materials. It was the, the place it was putting my heart in and I've now learned that I could have everything in the world and it cannot, it could not be an issue and I can still be where I'm supposed to be. I don't have to sell and get rid of everything, but if selling and get rid of everything is an issue for me, then, then that's the problem. <laughs> then that's the problem. It's not having it. It's the holding on to it. Like it's uh, something I've earned or something that I deserve. Thanks so much, Ben, for taking time to revisit a story that I sure look back on with fondness and that I think has a lot to teach us about what's really the priority in how we simplify life as it relates to possessions. For our next segment, Jess talks in depth with Hattie Dale. She shares on how having a singular vision or a simplified vision has radically changed, healed, 
and restored her marriage and life as she knew it. Some of the themes in this segment might be best reserved for a more mature audience. So, just to set the scene a little bit, I would love to hear from you what life is like for you right now. Your kids, where you live, your work, community, whatever pertains to uh, creating the life that you're living right now. We'd love to hear. Hey, well, thanks for having me, first of all. And yeah, our life right now can be described as chaotic. <laughs> um, we've actually been called before a circus just because um, our, our life is very colorful, very entertaining at times. Um, we have four girls um, aged six to 14, almost 15. So, I mean, on the best of days, it can be a happy chaos. And on the worst of days, it's just chaos. <laughs> yeah, like no stealing clothes, no crying, I'm sure. Just... Gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and having girls, I mean, the emotions that bounce around this house is just over the top. And uh, thank goodness for Ben, because he's our solid rock that we all run to crying. And he's just the balanced one. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's crazy. So we have four girls and my husband works full-time at the mill. We also run an entertainment company that we ran for a few years now, but has been recently shut down because of COVID. So I'm home a lot more, which is really good. And uh, we used to be really involved in church and in uh, charity stuff around town here. Um, but since COVID and actually just before COVID, um, we backed off of everything and, and really did make a decision to simplify our life. Um, I'd love to say that it just came about because we're awesome, intelligent people, but normally you have to hit rock bottom before you actually make a change that lasts. So that's kind of been our scenario. Yeah. Well, if it's any encouragement at all, I would just like you to know as coming from a family of four girls, um, it doesn't get any less emotional or chaotic. So you have that to look forward to for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. They'll be best friends, hopefully, throughout the years. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, um, I would love to then hear about this uh, this idea of simplicity that we've been talking about. Kind of um, paint a picture a bit of what life was like before this um, kind of forced simplicity, I guess. What was life like before resimplifying and why did things kind of seem like they needed to change? Yeah. So for me in my life, um, my life has always been borderline chaotic. Um, we have a, a uh, blended family. Um, and when I met Ben, I had two little girls um, from two different dads. And I just, I had had a really um, chaotic few years before I met him for many different reasons. Um, family dysfunction, mental health, that kind of thing. Um, so when I married him, I thought, great, I'm going to have the simple life I've always wanted. I'm going to have the husband and the house and the happy little family. And um, because I'd struggled a lot with being shunned uh, as a single mother, sorry, because I struggled a lot with being kind of shunned and judged and criticized as a, as a single mother with, with two kids from two different dads, um, I was really looking forward just to being accepted and, and loved and having that white picket fence kind of idea. So after we got married, um, 
we immediately had two more kids. <laughs> and, and I just remember struggling, feeling like this is not, like our life was happy, but there was still a huge part of me that I was like, this, things, things are not simpler. Things are getting more chaotic and I'm feeling um, more kind of empty than I was before. It was almost like that ideal that I had pictured in my head was just gone. Um, and I found myself in this endless chasing of peace and most of all, not knowing what to put first or what mattered most. Um, and I would, I would pursue all different things to try to figure out how to live the best I could. Because above all, I wanted to do what was right and I wanted to make God happy with me um, and just feel like I was living at my fullest potential. So I, I kind of just struggled with what that looked like and uh, lost my train of thought. That's okay. Um, you were talking about priorities, different focuses in life. Kind of thing. Yeah, um, I've always wanted to live a simple life. I've always been a fan of figuring out what's real and what matters most and focusing on that one thing. Um, I guess you can say I'm a goal-oriented person. <laughs> so that's, that's always been a big thing to me. And the the part that I struggled with was I was in a position where I didn't have the ability to have the privilege to live that classic simple life, like sell everything you own or, um, you know, like just become a, a nun or something like that, right? Like just that kind of that physical getting rid of everything and simplifying. I couldn't do that when you have two children. So I struggled with how to make my life simple yet meet everyone's needs. And what I kind of narrowed it down to was that there was four main priorities um, as a Christian for myself. And I couldn't figure out what order to put them in, but the four priorities that I found mattered most was my family, um, myself, God, and the rest of the world um, in terms of like helping them and loving them and right. So those are the four things that I struggled with where to put them, what to focus on first, in what order, um, I kind of tried to, to do all of those four at the same time. And I, and it really just felt impossible to me because I'd be focusing on one and the other three would fall. And at what time do you do that when it's okay to do that? Like it, it was very taxing on me. Um, yeah, I was just in a place of utter exhaustion and always missing the mark and there were needs and demands everywhere. And I just, I didn't have enough to give. So you have these kind of four categories of things and priorities, goals to order. Tell me a little bit about what that like or what that looked like when you feel like it wasn't quite in the right order. Yeah. So for a time, I decided that family was everything, which seems very natural for people, I think. Um, just, you know, I always put my family first and then we all slap everyone on the back and say, good job. That's the way to go. So I did that. And I think for a lot of moms, <laughs> we can relate <laughs> when we say that that might work for a while, but it, it can't work all the time. I mean, I was depressed. I had anxiety issues. Um, the kids just never were happy all the time and I couldn't fill that void. And my husband, you know, he's, he's 
going through his own stuff and and I'm trying to make him happy, but I couldn't control them. I couldn't control what they were going through or circumstances all the time. So it was just, it was a bit of a fail for me. I ended up gaining a lot of weight um, and to the point where I was definitely morbidly obese. I was eating two family-sized bags of chips a night and sometimes like five chocolate bars and really just disappeared into myself and was was lost. Um, and I just, I started getting bitter at my family for, for not uh, being fixed so I could move on to other things, right? It was kind of a black hole. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's, uh, that's where that one led me, putting the family first. So obviously this whole kind of putting family as only priority in life didn't turn out kind of the way you had hoped. Um, but I can see how, of course, as a mom of four girls, how that could happen so easily, I guess, and how that would feel like the natural goal or priority. Tell me about then one of the others. What kind of happened when you put another one of those priorities at the top? Yeah, so um, after me and my husband kind of identified that uh, we were not living thriving, right, um, in that scenario, we both started to work on our health and to lose weight, and then we both were really inspired to do more ministry. Um, and to focus more on like what the world needs and to share God's love. Again, seemingly really honorable intentions. Um, so we joined a prayer ministry that also had to do with healing. And we went out on the street and we prayed for people and we saw people healed miraculously. And I remember being like, yes, this is, this is everything. This is all that matters. And um, I just felt so confident that this is 100% percent what we should focus on but for girls life it's not simple and I felt envious that I couldn't be like a disciple and just leave everything behind and go travel around and pray for people and preach the word and you know like that that for me would have been like yes that'd be so amazing I could just focus on that one thing but I couldn't um so I I remember this one time I was at the grocery store with my girls and we were just leaving and there was a couple people in the parking lot rough looking guys. And I was like, I got to pray for them. I just felt that call. Right. So I said to the girls, you guys wait here in the truck. I'm just going to hop out and go pray for them. And I could see the truck. They were close to me. So I went over and I began to talk to them about God and, and ask if I could pray for them. And meanwhile, <laughs> my kids started fighting and my one daughter rolled down the window and was screaming out the window that she had to go pee and someone else was crying and the guys were looking at me like, are you serious right now? And I was just in that moment, I realized that this is not working. I cannot at the drop of a hat um, go and just leave the kids, but do I reject what God's calling me to? It was just such a torn place. So I was like, okay, obviously there's human limitations to God's calling on us, right? And he knows that. He completely knows that. Um, so that kind of made us readjust the way we did things there. Wow. Again, honorable intentions. Um, totally wanting to put God and ministry first. Um, but also sounds like that didn't quite work out the way you thought. So where did you go from there? Yeah, so there I, we entered into a time in my life where, um, I mean, things were going well. We moved into a brand new house, finally had the house of my dreams. 
Ben uh, was working, got his apprenticeship at the mill. Our business was going well in the summer and I felt like I had everything. Um, but I was still super depressed, super empty, wondering like what my purpose was kind of, right? And things just felt so chaotic and not simple at all. Um, so I started just thinking, well, maybe there's sense in what the world says about putting yourself first. Um, and so I did that, but, you know, cause you hear to love yourself, but I always say there's a difference between candy love and vegetable love. Um, the love that's easy and feels good. And then the love that's hard, but is good for you. <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. So I went down the candy love road and, um, I just like, I lost a ton of weight. I felt so good about myself. Um, I got a job at a law firm. I was a legal assistant. I started pursuing my music career because I'm a singer songwriter. Um, ended up helping out with the worship at our church and leading Bible studies in our home and just kind of decided it's, it's might sound like I was putting the world first or putting my family first, but I, I really was just trying to find my purpose at all costs. And that definitely led down a very dark road, um, which really ended up kind of bringing about this whole change in our life. So I'd love to hear about this change. This kind of feels like the moment where you really had to reevaluate kind of these four priorities and how to have a single vision. So tell me a bit about like, how this vision came to be and maybe what this vision is now for you. <clears throat> okay. Well, it is hard to talk about, but I always tell my kids that we don't have to be afraid to talk about the darkness because God's light is bigger. And um, regardless of how this comes across, I hope that people understand wherever they're at that there is hope for them and that it's very simple um, to get there. So, um, yeah, so I was pursuing my own um, purpose, I guess is the best way to say that. I was putting myself first because I tried putting everything else first and I just, I couldn't be enough no matter how hard I tried. So I essentially gave up. And at that point in my life, I was a worship leader. I was a president of a not-for-profit in our town. Um, I was in church leadership, head of, or not head, but involved in the evangelism team, running our business, like best shape of my life, thinking that everything was going well. And it was at that point where I actually fell headlong, I shouldn't say fell, chose and chased um, an affair um, outside of my marriage, a relationship. And so that's, that's the road that I went down and it, it was a dark, dark road. And for so many people listening, I know you might be thinking, oh my God, I could never be there, but I never thought I was able mm -hmm. to be there. And I mean, it just goes to show that if you don't address the issues in your own heart, that they will address you. Um, and trying to fill the void with a million other things wasn't working. So this was the place I found myself. So I found myself completely numb to everything that I had believed in my life. And as time went on, I got number and number. 
until it was just kind of like a survival instinct. Um, the chaos that I created was so monumental and so complicated. I, I just, it was too much. There was no simple way to deal with any of it. Um, so I spiraled and left my husband. We separated, I moved out. Um, and through a chain of ridiculously disastrous events, um, ended up at my absolute lowest point where I didn't think I was worth anything and everything was just too big to, to manage. So I ended up in the hospital one night um, after drinking far too much. And uh, it was at that moment that I knew that my husband was the man for me even in the midst of my struggles, because he was by my side when everyone else turned their back. So it was at that time, um, at the very end of myself, when I went to go talk to a counselor finally, um, who also happened to be our pastor's wife. And so thankful for that lady because I sat down, I was a absolute wreck in her office, just a pile of tears and I was separated from my husband. My entire reputation had been completely kiboshed because everyone knew, everyone found out about the affair and about everything else. And there was rumors circling and I was just like, you know, and my kids knew that we were separated. That's all they knew. Um, and I was, I was just in a wreck. I'd lost everything. And I told her, you know, what, what do I, what do I do? And she said the most beautiful words to me. She said, well, Hattie, the good news is that you only have one problem. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> How can you possibly say that looking at the chaos of destruction I've just caused? And she said, you only have one problem. You don't know who you are. Not only did I not know who I was, but the deeper issue was that um, I did not love myself. And so therefore I had no love to give. I, uh, the destruction that came about in my family, the, the things that I did that hurt so many people um, seemed unbelievable. Like how could I do those things? But when you don't love yourself, you have the inability to love others as well. And you will only ever love others to the same extent that you can experience love in your own heart. So because I was numb to myself and I hated myself and I was disgusted with myself, I had absolutely no capability to love and protect and respect my family, which ultimately was the downfall of everything. When I walked out of her office that day, I just remember feeling like, okay, if I can just focus on this one thing, right? Just this one thing, things became very simple for me. So that, that, was, that was the beginning for me of a journey um, that has lasted up until present day. Um, it's been almost, almost two years now, just over a year and a half. Um, and yeah, so just fast forwarding a little bit, I did return home. I did the move of shame, as I call it, and packed up my things and went back home. And um, even though we were all together, there was still so much destruction that had been caused. Um, one of those things being my second daughter's father had taken her during that time and we had to fight through court to get her back home to us. So the first few months being home was, was really, really hard. And because I didn't feel like originally that I wanted to live, I had to fight to see the worth in me being there when I had caused so much pain 
and so much trauma to everyone in my family. And I just really focused on the one simple thing that I could think of, which God, God gave me this gift was the only thing I could focus on was that being alive, just me being alive brought my heavenly father joy, regardless wow. of anything else that I did. And it really boiled down to that. So he just spoke to me. God spoke to me through so many different ways during that time where he was just like, Hey, you're breathing. Good job. You know? And life became really, um, hope, hope became simple really is, is what that amounts to. So from that point forward, my journey to discover who I am was my main focus. And even though it was simple, it was not easy <laughs> because simple does not mean easy. And what I had learned in my life is that in pursuit of easy, things get far more complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then what changed for you was really kind of pursuing your identity of sorts. Um, how did that pursuing your identity kind of help those four categories that you talked about earlier? How did that help those maybe fall into a more healthy place? Yeah, so really, really cool things happened for us. So first of all, I had lost everyone um, in my corner, I guess you could say, right? Uh, which I completely understand. There was a like two families, maybe church families who still hung on to us and they were gold. So they actually found out about a, a marriage counseling course and was like, you guys need to go. It's a marriage intensive for one week. Like we will come up with the money we will send you such a blessing. I'm so thankful for them. So we went and it was intense. It was like eight hours of counseling, like every single day for five days straight, no breaks. So, but during that time, God gave me a very singular vision. Uh, it was actually an image that he gave me because I was still struggling. Like, okay, so I'm alive. That's great. But life is more than just breathing. And where, where does my priorities lie, right? Like, like I'm, I'm going to pursue who I am and figure out who I am, but how does that look? How does that fit into all these other needs I have that I just feel like I'm inadequate for and all these things. So he gave me this picture, which sounds non-biblical, but it actually is very biblical once I started looking into it. He gave me the picture of a champagne tower <laughs> with uh, the very top cup being me as in number one priority was me. And then below that, my husband. And the third tier was my family, my kids. And then everything after that was the world. And I was like, God, where are you? Where are you in this? And he said, I'm, I'm the wine that's being poured into you. And as I pour into you, I overflow down the tier into every other aspect of your life. And that's your priority. So the priority for me, the simple priority for me, um, was that I was to receive his love first and foremost, and that that was my main job, to see myself the way that he sees me and to receive it, and to love myself the way that he loves me. Um, that was my very first, that, and, and it is my first priority. And out of close everything else, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so with that picture came the, the understanding um, 
the belief in who, in who I am, who God made me to be, um, that I am a child of God. I am chosen, loved, and called. And anything outside of that, it complicates things, right? Um, and we're going to forget and remember that, like, all throughout our life. But life is a journey of forgetting and remembering again. And uh, remembering the simplicity of who we are is, is the joy of salvation over and over again in our life, right? Yeah, I, I love that idea of um, it's not that those four priorities were wrong, but it was like the way you actually lived into those priorities. It was not just about serving your family, but it was about knowing that love of God and then being able to share that love with your family. And it wasn't about just like your own success, your own kind of personal growth. It was about your relationship with God, that that's what was going to feed that growth. So I love, yeah, I love that it's not the priorities that were wrong, but it was like the way that I guess God was enmeshed throughout them all, which is, yeah. And it sounds like, yeah, what a journey to discover that. Um, I would love to hear kind of as you and your husband have now, um, you know, reconciled and in, in the process of, of, yeah, I guess, repairing your family together. What does that vision look like for you? And, and how has that been to kind of do that with another person? What would you say your singular or simple vision is together? Yeah, so we definitely did develop a singular vision. Um, and that is something I'm so grateful for because that doesn't always happen, <laughs> right? Uh, and most likely it, it doesn't happen. Um, but my singular vision and his singular vision was the same. Um, it's not something that we had to decide on together. It was something that was just that we were on the same page on. Um, so for, for us, our vision really comes down to what our identity is um, and that it's out of our control. It has been determined by God and it's unchanging. Um, our journey is uncovering and remembering who we are according to God and who he sees us as regardless of our circumstances or our choices or our actions. And we pursue this individually and support each other and our children in uncovering their true God-given identity. And that's been our vision, is to see ourselves the way God sees us, to see each other the way that God sees us, and to encourage each other and remind each other of who we are, of who we're called to be, right? But who we actually are at the same time. Wow. What an encouragement, I think, to really make that point that simplicity kind of as a spiritual disposition isn't easy and isn't neat and isn't without the messiness of life. But how beautiful is it, the reconciliation and the redemption and the life that you two can now build together kind of because of this renewed focus and I think that is so encouraging to anyone, kind of no matter what their situation is, that knowing that they are a child of God is as a simple vision can, I think, do so much as it has in your life and in your families. So thank you for that honesty and vulnerability. And I just want to really honor, um, I think, the truth that you and, and Ben are living out now and and being honest about life but where God is bringing you now 
is a huge encouragement. So thank you. You're so welcome. And the only, the only thing that gives me the ability to talk about it is the knowledge that, um, is that, is that we're all human and that there's people out there who could be in this situation who, who just don't know where to turn. Right. And I, I firmly believe, you know, if God can turn our situation around, he can do it with anybody. Um, and I didn't always believe that. <laughs> Hattie, is there like a verse or um, a, a part of scripture that you've really clung to kind of relating to your journey with discovering who you are in God and this new vision? Yes. Yeah, so when I first got this image of the champagne tower or the glasses tower and how how that could be biblical, right? Because I'm like putting myself first. That is so not biblical. The verse that really came to me was the verse when Jesus talks about summing up all the laws and the prophets and that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Please correct me. Is that right? Sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that's where the loving your neighbor as you love yourself was huge to me because I started to see how the world teaches us that we can only love either our neighbor or ourself. And we're always going to be in one of those two ditches. And God's way is actually loving yourself and your neighbor at the exact same time in every situation where you don't put yourself last, like I had so many times, right? And you don't put your neighbor last. You actually do what's best for both of you. And it seems completely impossible, but it's not. It's God's way. And it's, and it's hard. It can, it can be soul-stretching and confusing, and, but it's, it's hard for sure. But it's not um, complicated when you look at it the way that it's meant to be. And so for me and my husband, something we learned in our marriage counseling was um, we took a, an oath um, to, to never do anything that wasn't a win-win for both of us. And that seemed impossible at the time. But as you live with integrity and you receive God's love and depend on him fully to fill your void, um, then you are able to address things as a win-win and to do God's way, which is simultaneously loving yourself and your partner or whoever else at the exact same time. And you can never fail. You can never fail when you approach it from God's view. You're never going to be being too selfish or too giving or too codependent or whatever you want to call it, right? When you approach it from that standpoint, you will always be doing the right thing. Wow. Yeah, thanks for that. You're so welcome. Our last snapshot is a conversation Greg had with our friend Anne Redekop. Her story is about following instincts, finding answers, and exploring what makes someone a safe person and good listener. As helpful background, Anne talks about Hope Central, which is a community within New Heights that cares for all kind of people. Sheila Nielsen is mentioned and notably was a big part of getting Hope Central started. So 
I am excited to have Anne here today, and I think my excitement is matched with her lack of excitement to be doing this <laughs> because uh, public speaking or hearing the sound of her own voice <laughs> is not something she uh, is necessarily that into. But mm -hmm. all the more reason we're so grateful you would talk a little bit about your life with us, Anne. Um, why in the world uh, did you say yes when I asked you? I fully, I, like I thought, oh, Anne will appreciate the offer, but I'm like <laughs> waiting for the no. Why do, you, why do you think you said yes um, to telling the story of how you got involved with Hope Central, which inevitably led to you being involved with New Heights? Yeah, yeah. Um, when I first read your, your um, message, I thought, like I said, I just wanted to like run away. I wish I would have just not ever seen that. <laughs> you mean and to be on the podcast? Yes, yes. It's easy for me to say no. Mm. But something inside told me to just be still and think about this. I just couldn't say no. I didn't want to say yes, but because it wasn't my story, I thought I just I thought I'd try. I'd I would just try. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I wish everybody would say that to my texts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My story. It was like it was a Monday. I remember it all so clearly. It was I, I remember it because my daughter-in-law's dog, Nixon, came over every Monday to visit me, and he would hang out for the day. But when Thomas came, he didn't come with Nixon. And, and so I thought, oh, okay, guess I'll figure something else to do today. And as I was, like, doing the dishes, I, I had this overwhelming feeling that I needed to go out and find somewhere to volunteer. I'd been looking, like, months before for somewhere to volunteer in Maple Ridge and Mission, and I, I headed out. I just kind of let it all lay there, let it simmer. But today, I just was, I just knew I had to go out today. I don't know what it was, but so I hopped in my car. When I got to the Lougheed, I needed to make a decision, like head to Mission or head to Maple Ridge, and I thought, okay, God, you got to help me here because I don't know where I'm going. And I found myself going to, to Mission. And I'm driving to Mission, and I am I'm so excited. I'm, like, so excited. I bet you I was smiling. I was just smiling as I was driving to Mission because someone's going to meet me in Mission. You just had this sense that this was a important move you were making. It was like crazy. There was something going to happen. So I thought, okay, I I need I got to go somewhere, and so I thought I would go to community services. Seems like kind of the hub place, a mission to find somewhere to volunteer. And so I thought, okay, I'll go there. And I went to community services, and 
I'm walking up the stairs to go into community service, and there's this woman in front of me who was a little bit unsteady on her feet, and I just remember looking down at her shoes, and I remember her shoes like clearly, like I saw them yesterday. And I go inside, and I talk to the girl at the t- at the counter, and and I ask her, "Do you have anywhere where I can volunteer?" Like, and I thought she'd like have a whole list of places I could choose from. And she said, "No, I don't. No, there's. I don't know. I don't think. That, no, there's nothing." And then she looked at me and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, you know what? I always picture myself caring for the homeless people. I don't know where that's come from, but that's the picture in my mind that I have. And and she said, no, there's nothing in mission that, that I can think of that needs volunteers from the homeless people. And I felt like, what? And I just turned around and I was going to leave. And then in the corner, there was someone like waving her hands, trying to get my attention. And and then I looked at her and, and it was the woman that was walking in front of me really slowly up the stairs. And she said, I couldn't help but hear overhear your conversation. And I'm always looking for people. I I care for the people in mission, the homeless people, and I'm always looking for volunteers. And that's when I met Sheila. And Sheila didn't, like, have an office. Her van was her office. I think I was her only volunteer. And normally I would have, like, asked her questions. But I thought, you know what? I was looking for someone in mission, and I found her. And I was good with that. And so what did Sheila take you to do? Like, what kind of work did she have you she, she said, I asked her that, like, I asked her, what can I do? Like, give me a task, give me a job. And she said, Anne, just connect, build relationships with people. And so I forced myself, because she didn't have an office, I forced myself and I went out and I met people. I don't know how I did that, but I went to the UGM and there I just talked to someone and it was a, it was like shocking that people would like share their stories with me. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I often talk about you as one of the most well-loved, if not the most well-loved, and maybe that's not even something we need to know who's the most well-loved volunteer at Hope Central, but your ability to listen to people and connect with them has been obvious over the years, for sure. And like, I'm curious, it's interesting to hear the way that you talk about being the one that is shocked at relationship. And I wonder if there's something about how, the posture that you have of not needing anything from people, but being blown away that they are sharing with you that creates a different dynamic, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, um, I don't want anything 
in return, I don't expect anything. I, I just, my, I think my, my prayer, like when we started Hope Central, my prayer was that every single person that walked through that door, that came in for, for breakfast or just to hang out, I just, my prayer was that every single person would just know or feel that they were loved. That I noticed them or somebody noticed them and that they they knew that they mattered. Do you think like when you think of what you've learned or things that have kind of crept in from the way that that's gone for you, are there things that are just leap to mind that are obvious or is it hard to articulate or put words to what um, being part of that community for this long has done to you as a person? I don't think I had any, any idea what I was stepping into. It was something like totally new to me. Um, I think I, I realized that I was no different than anyone that came there for breakfast. I was like, I first thought nobody will ever talk to me. I'm like, yeah, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter to them at all who I was. And I loved that. Yeah, it sounds like it, it's, it's so interesting for me to look back at you leaving the dishes and driving and making a choice and then being excited and thinking you're going to meet someone and kind of tracking back in the story. And then you fast forward and all of a sudden that it's almost like God had something for you instead of some way to use you for others. But it, I guess in the way that you made yourself available, um, it ended up affecting you as much or more is what I kind of hear you saying. Yeah, I think it it added so much to my life then. I never, I never expected that ever. I feel like so alive. Any little thing that I can do to just brighten someone's day just means the world to me. Like if, like usually we are like two, maybe one or two scoops of brown sugar. Someone wants four, four. I don't care. <laughs> if that if that's important to them right then, like. If I can do that for them, that's like awesome. Yeah, just those little things that mean so much. Totally. I think that one of the things that's that I've noticed about people is that those that are like ninjas at kind of reading people's emotions and being good listeners, which is the category I'd put you in, like a, an emotional health ninja. <laughs> <laughs> I think don't know they are. And um, sometimes it's because they are like unaware of how good they are at listening. And, or maybe it's, maybe there's, there's aspects of being insecure about being the one talking that makes them so good. But, um, what is it like for someone like you to 
walk up to a table at Hope Central and approach someone knowing that that you're hoping you're not the one that's going to say something, but that, that they will. Like, how do you, in your head, what process do you go through? It's, it's like a dance. It's like hmm. the scariest thing ever. And I hmm. grab my, the coffee pot so I have an excuse or a reason to go to, the, to somebody or a table and I'm like, hey, do you guys need any coffee? Can I? It's like, it's like a dance. And if I, if someone seems interested in talking, I'll kind of cue into that. It's like the hardest thing ever. But I know how, but I want to do it more than ever. And so I force myself to do that. And I, and I just see if there's someone that's kind of open to maybe talking, I'll stop and talk or listen. I love it when someone will just talk so I don't have to talk. <laughs> yeah. One of the questions we've been asking over the course of the last couple of weeks and hopefully through the whole month is whether or not you feel like if you could look at the Anne from 20 years ago or 30 years ago or whatever, and how you see yourself now, if like faith and spirituality has gotten more yeah. complex or if yeah, it's gotten more yeah, yeah, simple. Yeah. Like what's your knee jerk reaction to that um, from the lens of working at Hope Central? I think my first thought is simpler because I, I found a place where, where I... I belong. Like, I feel like I just belong there. And I kind of know my role and I kind of know what my gift is. At the same breath, it's kind of harder though, because it's simpler because I know what my role is and I know where I'm at. And, and yet to follow the ways of Jesus and to live that is hard. Like it's, I know what my role is, which is simple. It simplifies it, but to live that, that's hard. But I think hard isn't a bad thing. Yeah. It would be very convenient to not need to be a follower of Jesus some of the time. <laughs> so you could let people know what you really think or like let an enemy stay an enemy or... Whatever. I know, like, it's really shown my true colors, which I don't always, they're not always that pretty. I don't think that I've ever been with you and not felt like you're interested in my life. You know, I think that's something you're exceptional at, is taking an interest in whatever people are saying. Yeah. And now I'm learning that maybe that's because you're just thrilled you're not having to yeah. describe what's going on. I don't on. want to talk about <laughs> myself, so... I'm, I hope it's somebody else will talk so I don't have to talk. Well, and I wonder like how much of that is, um, you feel like you feel like it's maybe a weakness, but it's actually kind of de the description of why it's such a strength for you that b being such a great listener and maybe it's, it's, um, part of the package in being someone that creates an atmosphere where someone feels really comfortable 
because you feel so uncomfortable. They don't feel like they have to, they're, they're almost like helping in the conversation. And it's almost something you can't pick up on a surface level, but I wonder if there's a dynamic in the air when someone is really putting themselves out there that people can sense it, you know? Yeah. Thank you for listening, and a special thanks to Ben and Hattie Deo and Anne Redekop. Thank you to our silent sponsor and our very supportive church community. And of course, young Obi Alford for putting together the music that backs our voices. Join us again in two weeks when the re-podcast explores with our guest Bob Roglian how to get a more mature sense of what's up for grabs when we commit or re-commit to the way of Jesus. This has been episode six of the re-podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before.